0: manage the resources entrusted to you well in order to further the kingdom and to be prepared for the day of judgment. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, folks, I want to start off by asking you a question here This morning, and that is what does it mean to be forward thinking? What does it mean to be forward thinking? Not a rhetorical question, an actual question. What does it mean to be forward thinking? Well, it's what it means to be thinking of the future, right? To be thinking of the future, to consider how your actions today will affect you or others in the future, give an example of some forward thinking here. Does anyone here have a retirement savings account or are you making some plans for, your, for the future there with that? Why? Why are you doing that? Shouldn't you just trust the Lord? When that day comes, you can trust the Lord, right? Well, yes, we should trust the Lord, but we should also be thinking and making plans, investing for that day, right? So why do you have a retirement savings plan? Why are you doing that? Well, Because you're going to need it, and it would be foolish not to make plans for that eventuality. But I've got to tell you, though, far more foolish than not making plans for your provision in retirement would be to fail to plan for eternity, to fail to plan for forever. Now, I'm not talking about earthly retirement savings to last you forever. That would be pretty tough to swing, don't you think? I'm not talking about earthly treasures, I'm talking about investing now in the true treasures, the true treasures, spiritual treasures that will bring dividends forever in heaven and on the new earth. So we must not live our lives now focused only on earthly things that are here today and gone tomorrow, but rather we must build true treasure, heavenly treasure that will last forever. Forever. And that is wisdom. So we are continuing then in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a harmony of the Gospels, taking the messages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them together into one flowing account of the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been following the order of events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And for today, we're looking at forward thinking management, managing our lives, managing our resources with a view to the future, and namely, not just the future here on this earth, but forever for the eternal state then. Our text is in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 31, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 31. And you ask, well, what's the big idea? What is the key thought that you want me to take away from the message? Well, here it is. It is, we must manage the resources that have been trusted to you. Manage the resources entrusted to you well in order to further the kingdom and to be prepared for the day of judgment. Manage the resources entrusted to you well in order to further the kingdom and be prepared for the day of judgment. (laughs) Before we look at our text in Luke chapter 16, a little context here. Jesus has been ministering in the vicinity of Jerusalem. You know, the Jewish people were very eager, eager for the arrival of their Messiah. They looked to his coming in order to set them free from the oppression of Rome and to restore the kingdom of Israel and to bring the nation to great prominence and power and glory again. And Jesus was drawing large crowds. People were amazed by his miracles. But he would say things sometimes that were surprising or difficult to accept. And he spoke of how there would be many Gentiles who would enter the kingdom. So last week we looked at the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, the prodigal son. And we saw how vitally concerned God is with the repentance of all sinners, including, yes, even notorious sinners like tax collectors. But before we look at our text in Luke, text in Luke 16 today, I want to ask you a question. Here it is This also is not a rhetorical question. You can actually answer this one, okay? Here it is. Is material wealth a sign of God's blessing on your life? Is material wealth a sign of God's blessing on your life? What do you think? No? Yes? Is it yes? No? And the answer is all of the above, isn't it? Right? You see, sometimes God does favor people with material blessing, doesn't he? But sometimes, though, his blessing is in other ways, and it does not include material blessing here and now. And just because someone has material blessing, that doesn't mean, or has material wealth, doesn't mean they have the blessing of God on their life, does it? Far, 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 far from all from that. Far from it. But what do you think then? You know, someone can have great wealth, and their heart is far from God. And there's certainly nothing unusual about that at all. Someone may have very little of the world's goods, but they're richly blessed by God. So what is the critical factor then when it comes to true riches? It's the heart, isn't it? It's faith in God. It's faith in Christ, regardless of whether one has Much material blessing or not, that's the true issue, isn't it? Our heart and our faith in God, our faith in Christ. Now, in Jesus' day, though, many people believed that wealth was, in fact, a sign of God's blessing and favor. We got some folks who teach that today, don't they? Wrongly teach that today. But many people believe that. And you remember how Jesus' disciples were stunned when he said that it was hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why were they so surprised? Because they thought, well, if someone is rich, then obviously God likes them. God's favoring them. They're not gonna have any trouble entering the kingdom. But Jesus was stunned when he said, not many wealthy will enter the kingdom. Turn it about on them. But you see, that attitude, that attitude of wealth as a sign of God's blessing was shared by the Pharisees. And we know that for many of them, their hearts were far from God, weren't they? So let's look at Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus speaking here, he says, He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and and charges were brought to him, about "'that this man was wasting his possessions. "'And he called him and said to him, "'What is this that I hear about you? "'Turn in the account of your management, "'for you can no longer be manager.' "'And the manager said to himself, "'What shall I do, since my master "'is taking the management away from me? "'I am not strong enough to dig, "'and I am ashamed to beg.' I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to them, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Who is confused by this? Who is it? I have always found this to be one of the more interesting or challenging parables. Like what is going on? What is Jesus saying here? Why is he telling a story in which The hero of the story is a dishonest guy and then the man who's supposed to be over the commends him for his, not for his dishonesty, what, for his shrewdness. Wow, that's pretty good thinking on your part, right? So what is Jesus saying then to you and me? What's the point of it all? Well, I think we need to understand here that in this parable of this shrewd, unjust steward or manager, that Jesus told this parable to teach that his disciples must use their wealth, their resources, for kingdom purposes. In the parable, a rich man calls this manager, this steward, to give an account of his dealings, He had heard that the manager was not handling the wealthy owner's finances wisely. Now, in those days, uh, managers were often hired by wealthy people to care for the finances of their estates. Do we have anything like that today? Certainly, like financial planners, financial managers, right? So it was comparable then to a financial planner or a trustee who controls the finances of an estate for the purpose of making more money for that estate. Now the money did not belong to the manager, but he was free to use it for the benefit of the estate to increase the value of the estate. And apparently then this manager was wasting the goods then as the younger, just as the younger son had wasted the father's goods in the story of the lost son. But at the beginning of the parable here, the rich man seems to view this manager as irresponsible rather than as unjust or dishonest. But the manager finds out about this, and he's going to fire him. So the manager has an idea. Like he says, well, I'm not strong enough to dig. That was what I don't want to do physical labor, right? Who wants to do physical labor? hmm, well, I can't really do that. And I certainly don't want to go out and beg. So I have an idea. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make others indebted to me so that they'll feel obligated by what I did for them. So I'm going to call in these people that owe my master. And I'm going to downgrade the bill here. And so then they'll be happy to pay that off. And then, when I get fired, when I'm gone, they'll know they... They owe me, and they'll bring me into their home. Pretty shrewd, don't you think? So he's going to downgrade these bills here so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. Now, what would you expect the owner, the rich man, to do when he finds out about this? You would think what? He'd be very angry about this. But he doesn't respond that way. How does he respond? He's impressed. Like, wow, that was really smart thinking. So he commends him for being so shrewd. Now, the dishonest manager, he had not done a good thing. But what had he done? He had been careful to plan ahead, using material things to ensure a secure future for himself. Now again, the point is, don't, is, Jesus is not teaching that his disciples should be dishonest. That's not the takeaway from this. Hey, be dishonest. Take advantage of others. No. But he was teaching that we should be wise in how we use what we have been given in order to plan for the future, to use our resources, material things, for future spiritual benefit. You might say this was a good lesson from a bad example. You ever heard, you know, uh, you say like, like some of us, the, um, everyone, uh, everyone has a purpose. I, I saw a guy one time with a t-shirt that said, everyone has a purpose. My purpose is to be a, good, a bad example, right? You ever seen that, something like that? So what, we can learn from bad examples perhaps even better from, than we do from good examples, Right? And so Jesus is teaching us a lesson, a good lesson from a bad example. And so in three ways then, Jesus applies the parable to his disciples who had to live with non-believers in the world. The first one is that we should use our resources, use our money, all that we have, in order to win people into the kingdom. Win people into the kingdom. Jesus said, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. He's saying what? You know, the the worldly people, they're better at, at taking what they have and making it for the advantage of themselves in this world. They're better at that than we sons of light, the children of light are, in planning for forever. They're very smart about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years But meanwhile, the children of light, we're not being so smart about the next 10, 20, 30, 40, thousand years, million years, billion years, right? So if they're wise about planning for a few decades, how much more so then ought we to be wise about a few millennia, or better yet, forever, right? Right? The people of the light, then, should use worldly wealth, the things of this life, in order to advance the kingdom, in order to welcome people into the eternal dwellings. In other words, what? To use what we have to reach people with the gospel, to bring them into God's eternal home. Wealth, then, should be a disciple's servant, And not vice versa. We shouldn't be serving wealth. It should be serving us for the purpose of eternal kingdom building. So the disciples then would be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That is, our wise use of wealth will help lead others to believe the message of the kingdom and to bring them to accept that message. A second application then is found in verses 10 through 12 where Jesus says, if one is faithful in his use of money, then he can be trusted with greater things. You know, isn't that a good way to t- test someone is, are they faithful with a little responsibility that they've given? Well, if they can be faithful with that, then you can entrust them with more. But if someone is unfaithful in a small thing, can you trust them with much more? So if we can't be trusted to manage well things like our money, can we be trusted with true spiritual treasure then to manage that well? So be faithful in the little things and we will be given greater spiritual riches to manage well. Third application Jesus draws from the parable is is that a person cannot serve both God and money. You'll love the one and hate the other. Love for money Now, said, money in and of itself isn't evil, is it? But it's the love of money, serving that, and that love of money drives away our love for God. On the other hand, loving God will cause one not to make money a primary concern in life. There's some folks here nearby who are listening. They're hearing this. Who's, who's, Who's hearing this? Jesus, the the nemesis of Jesus, who were they? The, The Pharisees, right? Look at what Luke tells us next here, starting in verse 14. He says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commit adulter- commits adultery, and he who marries as a woman, divorced from her husband commits adultery. Who is confused again? Right? What? Why does Jesus bring that up? Well, stay tuned. I'll show you in just a moment here. So we saw the, the shrewd, the unjust steward. Now we see unjust lovers of. Money, The Pharisees. Pharisees loved money. So they didn't like hearing this, what Jesus was saying. So they were sneering at him. Because who is, who is this poor man, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, who's being followed by other poor people? And now he has the nerve to teach about money? But Jesus responds that God knows the hearts of people. And he's not impressed with their outward appearances or their wealth. And though the Pharisees justified themselves, God, who judges the inward man, will be the ultimate judge. See, the Pharisees misunderstood the blessings of God's covenant, and they assumed that a person's wealth was automatically a sign of God's blessing in return for righteous conduct but they completely neglected the fact that many people, many righteous people in the Old Testament lacked material things while many unrighteous people had plenty. The Pharisees were like some of us that don't wanna let the facts get in the way of what we want to believe, right? So that's what they wanted to believe about wealth. In spite of what scripture said, So Jesus says what he does here in verses 16 through 18. He says this then to the Pharisees because it illustrates what Jesus had just said about the Pharisees justifying themselves but really being judged by God. And he says that since the time of John the Baptist, he had been announcing God's kingdom. But people, including the Pharisees, We're trying to force their way into it. They're trying to get into it in an illegitimate way. Now, what's the way to get into the kingdom? Faith, Repentance and faith. Humility, repentance, faith, right? But they just thought they could waltz into it because, well, after all, they're the spiritual leaders, right? But in spite of justifying themselves, the Pharisees were actually not living according to the law. They thought that they were obeying the law. And maybe in some ways, outwardly, they looked like they were, right? But Jesus knew their hearts. And he knew they weren't truly obeying the law. And so he speaks of an example. That's why he brings up this issue of divorce as an example. And he says here, to divorce and remarry constituted adultery. See, because some of the Pharisees had a very loose view of divorce. It was acknowledged that a man should not commit adultery. But if a man wanted another woman, like many of the Pharisees, well, then one could divorce his present wife for no good reason and then marry the woman he desires. And they were justifying themselves in doing this. And this way they thought, well, I'm not committing adultery. But Jesus said, oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. And that's why he brings it out. So he says that as a way of being an example of how they were justifying themselves in their own eyes, but were not justified before God. So the religious leaders, for all of their talk, they were not actually living according to the law. And Jesus points out the importance of the law, saying what? Heaven and earth will pass away, but... Not one tiny stroke of the law will pass away. So people then should live by it. Jesus then tells another story that often gets taken out of its context and the focus goes elsewhere. But remember what we've been saying here and what Jesus is talking about. Then he tells another story, starting in verse 19. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Pretty miserable state of affairs, earthly, for this Lazarus, isn't it? Well, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you were in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's not a coincidence he said that, is it? The rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show that being rich should not be equated with being righteous. You see the rich man had everything he wanted. Purple clothes, that that these were very expensive things, fine linen, this was expensive. He had the best of everything. By the way, is, is it wrong to have nice things? Just having? No. But what was, what was the problem? It was his heart attitude. So he had all of this, and yet right out there, there's a poor crippled beggar named Lazarus who had nothing. And the man didn't do a thing to help him. So one lived in luxury for himself the other in abject poverty with hunger and poor health. Some have speculated perhaps Jesus picked the name Lazarus because of its meaning. It's the Greek form of a Hebrew name, which means God the helper. Doesn't that sound like Lazarus, God is my helper. (laughs) Have you seen the conditions this man is living in? God is my helper. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes it's like you look at your circumstances or maybe someone, a family member, someone you're concerned about, and you say, God is their helper? How can this be? Well, because it's the perspective of eternity, isn't it? It's all about that perspective of eternity. So perhaps that's why. Or another thought, I wonder, perhaps Jesus used the name Lazarus because he knew that coming not too far away from then, he was going to raise up a dead dead man named Lazarus, who would serve as a witness against the Pharisees. And even should one rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And they didn't believe the, raz- the Lazarus Jesus raised. But ultimately, who was Jesus talking about when he said, "Even if someone should rise from the dead, they won't believe"? He's talking about himself, wasn't he? So Lazarus then, now Lazarus was a righteous man, but it wasn't righteous because he was poor. There isn't any righteousness in simply being poor anymore that there's righteousness in being wealthy. It's a matter of the heart. Lazarus was righteous, not because he was poor, but because he depended on God. His faith was in God. We're told then that in the course of time both of the men died. Lazarus went to Abraham's side, while to paradise, heaven, while the rich man was buried and he was in Hades or hell, a place of torment. And the rich man was able to converse with Abraham. And he first begs to have Lazarus sent over to him to give him some water. Some commentators have noted. I think it's interesting. Isn't it interesting that even now he's still thinking of Lazarus, almost like Lazarus is his servant? Hey, have Lazarus come and and, and, and comfort me in some way. Like, order Lazarus to do that, right? But Abraham replies that that was not possible. There's a great chasm that is fixed. And he should remember that during his lifetime, he had everything he wanted while Lazarus had nothing. Now again, is the issue simply here about having something or not having something? No, it's what? The heart. heart. This man had all of that and he did nothing. Also, let's make it clear. Does this mean that if you have things and you do, you use the resources you have, to be a blessing to others, that somehow that's earning you favor or earning you heaven? No. It's faith, right? But if we have faith, should we be using our resources for others? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this man, he had never helped Lazarus during the course of his life. So the rich man next then, he begs then, well, then let Lazarus be sent to earth to warn his brother. See how he still thinks like Lazarus is his servant to, that he can send out? Well, let Lazarus go and warn his brothers. He didn't want his brothers to end up there where he was. And he was saying, look, look if someone comes back from the dead, then his brothers would listen. If, if Lazarus was raised, he could go and speak to them and, and, and then they'll believe, and they, they'll have faith. They won't, they won't end up here, where I am. But what does Abraham say? Well, if they refuse to listen to Moses and the prophets, that's what, scripture. If they refuse to listen to the scripture, then they won't listen, even if someone comes back from the dead. A lot of people think, oh, come on, if I saw something like that, oh, I'd believe. How many of you know that's nonsense? That's not true at all. If you won't listen to the scriptures, you won't listen to signs and wonders, even someone coming back from the dead. They didn't listen to the Lazarus, the real man Jesus raised, and they didn't listen to Jesus, did they? So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's saying that this rich man symbolizes the Pharisees. How do you think the Pharisees like that? Being told they were going to go to hell. And they wanted signs. They were always demanding signs of Jesus. Did Jesus give them signs? Signs of plenty, right? Did that motivate, did that motivate their hearts to faith and repentance and faith? No. They thought he was, uh, he, was he was he was doing this through the power of Satan, right? So they wanted more and more signs. But signs don't actually compel people to believe. Since they refused to believe the scriptures, then they wouldn't believe any sign, no matter how great it was. As I said, just a short time later, Jesus did, in fact, raise a man from the dead, a man named Lazarus, in John chapter 11. And what was the result? The Pharisees bowed down in repentance and faith? No, what did they do? They started plotting about how to kill not only Jesus, but kill who else? Lazarus. Oh, this guy's this is by Lazarus, this guy's walking around, he's saying stuff about it. We gotta kill him too. Does that sound like somebody who is convicted by a powerful sign? Nope. Three quick three quick key takeaways from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Number one. Use your resources for the kingdom, not selfish indulgence. Number two, note the reality and the finality of heaven and hell. And three, note the power of the word of God to convict and convert people, not signs and wonders in and of themselves. I want to talk for a little bit then about biblical stewardship. Stewardship means what? To manage the resources that belong to someone else. So the steward, the manager, doesn't own the money. he merely puts it to use in order to make more for the owner, to bring a good return on investment. And so if we're going to understand biblical stewardship, it starts with the fact that God is the owner of how much of what we have. All of it. God owns everything. And by the way, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not talking only or even primarily about money. This isn't a money message, although money is part of what we should steward or manage well, right? This is about managing all of the riches, the resources that God has given us, not just money, our time, our talents, all of these things, right? God owns it all because he's the creator of it all. And so how we manage these things that God has created and entrusted to us says a lot about the state of our hearts, doesn't it? So stewardship or managing the resources God has given us is an opportunity then for you and me to join with God in his worldwide and eternal redemptive purpose. Stewardship, then, is our obedient witness to God's glory. It motivates, or should motivate, the follower of Christ into action, doing things that manifest our belief and trust in Him as the owner of it all. Stewardship defines our practical obedience by administering everything that God has given us To control that's been entrusted to us. It's consecrating or dedicating ourselves and our possessions, our time, all that we have to God's service. Why? Because what's done for God is going to last forever and ever. What's done for self and for this world is here today and gone tomorrow. So stewardship, or managing all that we have for God's glory, that acknowledges then that we don't have the right to control over ourselves or, quote-unquote, our property. God has that. God is the owner. And it means that we're acknowledging that we are under his constant authority as we administer his affairs and his resources. It's acknowledging that we are not our own, but that we belong to Christ who gave himself for us. And so I guess the ultimate question then when it comes to biblical stewardship then is, what, am I the Lord of my life or is Christ the Lord of my life? Well, stewardship, faithful management, expresses our obedience to God and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I like this, uh, this, this statement from the Westminster Confession of Faith that says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end or purpose. Why did God make you and me? Why did God make human beings? The chief purpose is what? To bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. And there's great joy when we bring glory to God, isn't there? the chief end of man, the chief purpose for your life is to glorify God and enjoy Him for a couple of days. Don't enjoy Him forever and ever. Well, speaking of forever, I want us to get this perspective. Do you have an eternal perspective on your life? Do you have eternal perspective on your life? Do you regularly think about just how long Forever is. Do you regularly think about that? How long forever is? Well, I've got a little illustration I want to share with you here this morning to get this firmly into our minds about how long forever is and why then we should be living for forever and not right now. I've said this before, and if you've seen it before or heard me say this before, I'll ask you to bear with me, but I think it's good to have it repeated. If you haven't seen it before, may this... Get into our minds here about how long forever is. I got a little tape measure here. And Steve, I'm gonna need you to help me out here. Right. Come on up here. Here's take this yeah, is a twenty foot tape measure. Why don't you take this and just go down the aisle here? Just keep going there with that. About, oh, there we go. Okay. So there's our twenty feet. Okay. okay. So imagine here with this that your life, your life is like one inch. On this tape measure, what is one inch compared to that? Well, it's, that's just a very small part of that, right? It's just a very small part of that. So, I think, well, you see, well, that's what it's like, you know, for forever. Here's our lives right here. It's one inch on this tape measure, but forever. Oh, it's so much longer than that. Well, I got news for you. This is a this would be a paltry this would be a paltry illustration for forever, don't you think? I think it would be a terrible illustration of forever. So I want you to imagine, and Steve, you'll be relieved to hear this, that this tape measure was infinite and it could keep going on and on forever. So I would send Steve to just keep walking, right, okay? I'm not gonna send you out there because this is as far as this thing's gonna go, right? But I want you to imagine if this tape measure could just keep extending on and on and on. And let's say then that Steve started walking and he kept walking for a very long time until he eventually reached the Pacific Ocean. So now he's at the Pacific Ocean. I said, "Okay, your life, my life, is still just this one inch on here. What is that compared to that?" Well, now now we're still getting a little closer to illustrating forever, aren't we? But even so, no, that's still not it. So let's let's keep let's keep him going. So we're going to put him in an imaginary spaceship. I ask you to bear with me here, folks. <laughs> We're gonna put him in an imaginary spaceship in which he can, this this tape measure can just keep going on and on and on. And this imaginary spaceship is capable of flying at an incredible rate of speed. Let's say it can go at the speed of light. How fast is that? 186,000 miles per second. Works out to about 670 million miles an hour. That's pretty fast, don't you think? So let's say Steve is in a ship and he's trailing this, this tape measure along. He's going at the speed of light, 670 million miles an hour. How long would it take him to get to our next-door neighbor star? About four and a half years. Proxima Centauri, our next-door neighbor star, is about four and a half light years away. Now I want you to ask, okay, here's your one inch on that. How long is that? Oh, no, but that's just our next-door neighbor star let's take a little little trip across the galaxy the milky way galaxy is a hundred thousand light years so we're traveling in our ship at the speed of light which technically you couldn't do but let's just bear with me okay so you're you're traveling at that and you're going to go from one end of the galaxy to the other a hundred thousand light years here's our, here's our here's our tape measure but now it's still one inch Wow, all right. But no, we're not, we're not done yet. You can see, because our galaxy is one galaxy out of a trillion galaxies in the known universe. And so let's say we're going to go visit our next-door neighbor galaxy, which is Andromeda. How long is it going to take us at the speed of light to get to Andromeda, our next-door neighbor galaxy? I hear you calling, Lord, so, right? <laughs> Two and a half million years. Two and a half million years. So now this little tape measure is. Imagine how long the tape measure is at this point. Two and a half million light years away. But your life is still just this little little inch on there. So, alright, well let's let's keep going. So that's just our next order. Let's 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 take a trip across the entire known universe. How many light years is that? Well, our best guesstimate at this point is. Approximately ninety six billion light years. So imagine traveling at the speed of light for ninety-six billion years and this little tape measure has been unfurling before all that. And your life is how how long is your life? One inch. One inch on that. I got news for you. We still haven't illustrated eternity or forever, have we? Because as long as that is, it still eventually comes to an end, doesn't it? But forever never does. Now watch this. Let go, Steve. One day our lives are all going to be reeled in, right? And we're going to give an account for how we've lived. We're giving an account for that one inch that has ramifications forever and ever and ever. So what? Manage the resources entrusted to you well. Well in order to further the kingdom and to be prepared for the day of judgment. The state of forever. So I'll ask you, who owns your resources? God does. We don't own anything. God is the owner. We're entrusted with it to manage it well for his glory and for eternal purposes. To welcome people into eternal dwellings. Build the kingdom. Build the kingdom. And so I'll ask you then, are you investing in that which will live live forever? What are you doing with this amount of time that you've been given? Are you investing it in forever? That's what, it's investing in people and the glory of God, using all that we have to honor him, to expand the kingdom to welcome people into the kingdom because that's going to last forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to yourself, that you have richly blessed us, sometimes with material resources, yes, but you have given us all manner of treasure, Lord. Our time, our talents, the abilities you've given us, Lord. The opportunities you give us. May we use these things to invest wisely in eternity. May we hear the call that you are calling right now, God. May we respond to your call on our lives. And invest all that we have for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.